Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 33. Hear the scripture. Christ is speaking. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. There's a man named John Murray who is from Scotland who taught for many decades at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Before that at Princeton just for two years. But Professor Murray... In his collected writings in four volumes, there's a section there. There's an article that's a must-read on the fear of God. And the opening sentence is his thesis statement. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. In the last paragraph in his article, it says this in part. The fear of God could be nothing less than the soul of rectitude or true worship. It is the apprehension of God's glory that constrains the fear of his name. It is that same glory that commands our totality commitment to him. Once again, it is the apprehension of God's glory that constrains the fear of his name, beholding the glory of Christ. Now, I'm there's a man named David Wells from Zimbabwe who taught at Gordon-Conwell for years. He's still there. And he wrote a, a three-volume work. The first volume was 27 years ago. Uh, a book entitled No Way, what was it? No Place for Truth. Yeah, No Place for Truth. And uh, David Wells, who's a first-rate thinker, says this. He says, this is 1993. He says, I am astounded to have seen in my lifetime the slide of the evangelical church, that's us, churches that preach the gospel, the slide of the evangelical church into biblical and theological illiteracy. Now, if he said that in 1993, I'm not sure he'd say it any differently. probably would say it with more gusto today. And I want to cover something this morning. This is incredibly important, so I'm going to read a lot of verses. I'm going to go fast and hard because it's a lot of material, but I want you to grasp it. If John Murray is anywhere close to being right, and I think he is, that the fear of God is the soul of true godliness, then we need to ponder these things, church. We need to really ponder them and think them. There's a man named A.W. Tozer that many of you have read. He's from the greater Chicago area with the Christian Missionary Alliance. And Tozer made the comment that was something like this. Whatever you think about the character and the work of God is the most important thought you will ever have. 
because that would define the trajectory of your life. Whatever you think about the, the character and the work of God is the most important thought you have. So, so the fear of God. In this passage, in this passage, Jesus says, he says, there there are people that were plotting against the disciples and speaking in secret, and they were doing things in a clandestine fashion. And Jesus says, says, don't don't fear them, for for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So they're going to be exposed. And then he says, uh, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. As you know, in those days, there were no multi-level buildings. There were just one-level buildings. And so the, the people lived in these kind of uh, homes with a flat roof so they can go up uh, in the night when it was hot and sleep in the open air. And you could literally stand on the roof of your house and make announcements or make pronouncements or call people out. And people did that. So Jesus is speaking to their culture. He said, whatever I speak to you, just get on your housetop. Lay it out. And then he says this, don't, don't, don't fear these people that are plotting against you. Don't fear these people that will haul you into court. Because all, the, the only thing they can really do is kill your body. But the one you're to fear is the one who can destroy both your body and your soul in hell. And yet later in the passage, he says in verse 31, fear not. So, so what's going on here? So I want to talk to you about unbiblical fear and biblical fear. Start off with unbiblical fear. Um, if, if, for example, if there is no, nothing in my life that fears punishment from the triune God. Look at 1 John 4, 18. John writes, perfect love casts out fear. He says, for fear has to do with punishment. If you're a child of God by faith in the work of Christ, there is no punishment because Christ died on the cross for your sin. He absorbed the judgment that should have fallen on you. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I do not fear punishment. I don't fear being condemned because the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't fear waking up tomorrow and saying that God's mercy and provision and kindness and fatherly love are not enough because the Bible says here, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly father's knowledge and you're worth much more than many, many, many birds. I I, I don't fear, listen, I don't fear death. Death is is hard. It's a hard passage. But I don't fear the unknown of death because I believe the Bible teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I believe the Bible teaches that Paul says for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't fear these things. And let me ask you this. Everything we do flows from the gospel of grace. If you could give all of your money and deliver your body up to be burned and you're a believer, would God love you more? No, no, no. If if, if you could go to a foreign land and live in a dismal city and try to reach an unreached people group and forego the niceties of life in Charleston, would God love you more? No, I am in Christ. If if you, men, if we started 
loving our wife as Christ loves the church, and we even took out the garbage without being asked. Would God love us more? No. Our wives would, but then our God. I mean, you th think about it. If you're in Christ, you're eternally loved. If you could go a single week without a lustful thought or a proud thought or an arrogant thought, which is impossible because we're sinners. Would God love you more? No, because we're perfect in Christ. So we always start from the ground of the gospel. Therefore, I say there is no punishment or rejection or fear of not having enough or a fear of death. The most famous hymn in Christendom, written by a former slave trader, Amazing Grace. John Newton says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. What a great statement. Grace taught me I needed a Savior. But then grace taught me that my Savior was enough. We sang a hymn in this room a while ago, one of the, another great hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And you sing time after time, It Is Well, It Is Well With My Soul. Why can we sing, brothers and sisters, It Is Well With Our Soul? It's because one stanza goes like this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. In other words, past, present, future, sins are forgiven. Therefore, it is well with my soul. If I could not sing that, if I could not say that, if I thought that my acceptance before God was worth, was contingent on my obedience or my adherence to doctrine or my, you know, acumen or whatever, I could not sing it is well with my soul because I am a train wreck so often. So bad fear is a fear that says, I fear punishment, or I fear death, or I fear that God's provision is not enough, or I fear that I'm really not accepted in the beloved. That's from the pit of hell. Let me talk to you about good fear. Just two aspects of it. There's so much to cover. I'm going to go hard. Good fear is, this is it. The fear of God is the reverential adoration and joyful trembling that occurs in my heart as I am awakened to the mercies of the cross. It's, it's the joyful adoration, reverence, and trembling, joyful trembling that happens in my heart as I contemplate the glories and the mercies of the cross of Jesus. That's biblical fear. It's joyful trembling. Let me give you a few verses. And, and it's in, this is in your worship guide. It's Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13. And this is an, a, a non-intuitive verse. Just think about it. Just Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because, listen, because God is working in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Now you say, well, that's kind of counterintuitive. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is working in your heart. The, the fear and trembling is, is, is I can, it's like Wesley's old hymn. Uh, uh, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Really? For me? 
And so you step back and say, God has loved me with an everlasting love in his tender mercies. Somebody preached the gospel to me. My heart was awakened. My mind embraced it. And he brought me in. And even now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is working in me. And so therefore, I walk with joyful adoration and joyful trembling. I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling because God is glorious and he's working in me. Can you believe it? Can you believe that the Holy Spirit is working in your heart right now? It's amazing. The Holy Spirit is working in your heart to bring you safely home and to use you to impact your culture. He is. He's teaching you and prodding you and building you up. The second aspect of fear is that fear keeps us from arrogance and, and disregard of the tender mercies of God. When I walk in fear, I'm just going to read Proverbs 11, excuse me, Romans 11. So verse 17, Paul's talking about, about, about God grafting in us Gentiles. He's grafting in the Gentiles. The Jews, his chosen people, many of them fell because of unbelief, and God in tender mercy has grafted in Gentiles. Listen to this, verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off, unbelieving Jews, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others... <clears throat> And now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief but you stand fast through faith, so do not be proud or arrogant, but stand in fear or awe. Don't be arrogant, but stand in fear or awe. Awe, worship, joyful, trembling. When I consider the tender mercies of what Christ has done for me, it leads me to joyful, trembling worship. I, I need this, church. I need this. I need this. Do you walk in the joyful, trembling, adoration-filled reverence of God? Do you live in the fear of God? You always go back to the gospel. You always live the gospel. You always glory in the gospel. Again, the fear of God is the reverence, joyful, trembling, adoration, worship of God as you contemplate and are engrossed in the mercies of the cross of Jesus. There's a hymn by a guy named Augustus Toplady. The story goes he was walking through uh, a countryside one day in Scotland, I think it was, and a storm came in, and it was a pretty significant storm, and he saw a rock structure, and so he went and he found a shelter in the rock, and he sat there while the storm passed, and he wrote an incredibly famous hymn entitled Rock of Ages. It goes like this, Rock of Ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed on the cross be for sin the double cure, save from wrath and make me pure. Next stanza. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, these for sin could not atone, Thou must save, and thou alone. It's a great hymn. It's a great hymn. And something happened in my life a few years ago that made me sing the hymn for about four hours. I'll tell you a quick story. 
We've been in North Africa. Sarah and I have been in North Africa to speak at a, a seminary that we support. We stopped in southern Spain coming home. It was June. It was June, late June. We rented a little apartment up in the mountains of southern Spain, a place called Bubion, a little, just a little village, three little villages about a third of a mile apart. And we were in the middle village. And, and the lady who rented the room to us said, you've got to go to the top of the mountains. You're at about 5,000, I think, feet now. And the top of the mountain is, I think, 10,000 feet or so. And the bus goes up there every other day. It happens to be going tomorrow at 8.30. So I woke up early and went up to the next village. And I didn't, the guy didn't speak English. I, I speak a little Spanish. We were to communicate. The bus is going to leave at 8.30. It was about 8 o'clock. So I went running down. Uh, grabbed uh, a little bag, threw some food in it because it's going to be. They took you up and they left you there for quattro horas, four hours. I said, okay, okay. So we went charging up. I'm wearing a cotton sweater and you know sheer pants and uh, it's June, late June. And so we're there with 12 other people coming who are all Japanese tourists and they're wearing parkas and with hoods and gloves and. And I, I just started laughing. I said, there's some cultures that just dress all the time like it's 13 degrees below zero. And that's true. I mean, you, you know, there's some cultures that just dress very warmly. And I just kind of shook my head. And we got on the bus, and the bus started going up, up, up. Stopped, let us out, said, I'll be back here in quattro horas. I got out. I thought, it's cold. It's cold. And I'm wearing a cotton sweater. And really, it's cold. I said, well, the sun's out. Well, we'll be okay. Clouds roll in. I go, now it's really cold. The Japanese have gone on up. They're walking in snow, a big snow bank. With, with, I mean, I'm going, whoa, quattro horas. And uh, about that time, rain came in. And it, I mean, it, it, was, it was a dicey situation. I thought, Buster, you are stupid. You need to get more details, even if it's in Spanish. You can try to remember something. So as the rain was there and it was blowing, we, there were some rock formations. We found a crevice, and we literally pushed ourselves in the crevice of the rock till the, the, the rain had passed. And, and then it passed, and an hour later the sun came out, and so we survived with just a little bit of frostbite. You know, I lost three fingers, but that's beside the point. Anyway, but, but so my illustration crashes in this regard. If the crevice was really a gospel crevice, it wouldn't be a crevice. It'd be a cave. It'd be a cave with a roaring fire inside and a big table with hot tea and hot chocolate. And if since you're in southern Spain, with paella and lots of ham, they love ham. That's, it would be a gospel cave, not a cleft of the rock. Christ is our foundation and our hope. That's why the fear of God is the joyful trembling, joyful adoration, worship of the Christ as you contemplate the tender mercies of the cross. Let me give you a few principles. Number one, the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs says, repeatedly. The fear of God, which Psalm 19 says, the fear of God is clean, enduring forever. The fear of God, listen, brings equilibrium and balance to your life. The joyful trembling of, at the mercies of the cross, I can't believe the glories of Jesus. It brings equilibrium, balance, and passion to your life. Behold the gospel of grace. Behold the wonder of sins forgiven. Listen, it is easy to lose your bearings. 
It is easy to make bad decisions. It is easy to be swallowed up in a culture that puts no credence, no weight, no reality to an eternity that we know exists. No one in your workplace probably is going to say to you this week, listen, live for eternity. Listen, there is a heaven and there is a hell. And it's easy to lose your orientation. Those of us who are older, over 62 probably, will never forget where we were on November the 22nd, 1963. I was in the fourth grade on a playground. Our teacher called us in and she said, please sit down and be quiet. And they turned on the speaker and we heard Walter Cronkite say, Parkland Hospital has just pronounced that President John F. Kennedy is dead, assassinated in Dallas, Texas. It's a horrible thing. Many people not forget where they were three or four days later when this photograph was taken that is one of the most incredible photographs ever made in American history, in my opinion. And that's little John Kennedy saluting the casket of his father as I went by, three years old. In fact, the man who took the photograph said, this is the most heart-rending photograph that I've ever taken, a UPI photographer. So little John Kennedy grew up to be an incredibly handsome man. He had good genes, you've got to admit. Went to law school, started a magazine called George, dated various people, eventually got married to a, uh, a gifted young woman. And three years into their marriage, uh, I'll, I'll never forget where I was on, in 1999, June of 1999, I was in British Columbia on a sabbatical that you let me go on. And I looked down at the newspaper and it says, John Kennedy's wife, sister, died in a plane crash. What happened is John Kennedy had just been approved to be a pilot. He had 300 hours in the air, 100 hours by himself. He was flying a new airplane, and he went from New Jersey. He was going to Martha's Vineyard. He got away two and a half hours later than his instructor wanted him to get away. He was flying in the pitch black. There were no stars. It was an overcast night. Veteran pilots had decided not to fly, but he said, I've got to do this. His instructor said, I would like to fly with you because this is going to be a difficult flight potentially. And he said, no, I've got this. He had a, a very dear friend who was an experienced pilot who saw him at a convenience store across the street, and he was on his way to tell John Kennedy Jr., please don't fly. This is a not, not a good night. But as he was going across the street, our friend stopped him to converse with him. It was amazing. The chain of events had happened. But let me tell you a, a few things about this flight. There was no flight instructor. There, they left two and a half hours late. Um, and this plane, to have an autopilot that would bring you to safety, all you have to do is flip two switches, and the plane would ride itself. But he didn't do that. And the official report said that he died and his wife died, and his sister-in-law died because of spatial disorientation. Spatial disorientation. I don't, I'm not a pilot but, but, or anything like that, but, but your, your brain can do tricks with you. You can think you're flying this way when you're flying that way. Is, that's why they, they will say, fly by your instruments. He didn't fly by his instruments. And when he hit the ocean going down, he was, going, he was dropping at 4,100 feet a second. And I read that and I thought about the death of a very gifted man, woman, sister-in-law. And I thought about 
church, it's easy for us to get spatial disorientation. You see, the scripture is the experienced co-pilot or the autopilot that tells us how to live. We need to turn on the autopilot. We read the word, turn on the autopilot. The church of the living Christ and the people of the church are the experienced pilots sitting in the seat next to us who can help us think through these issues. We need them. We need to have glorious, God-centered thoughts about the character and greatness of Christ. We need to fear God, which means, again, with joyful trembling, adoration, and reverence, we are astounded at the tender mercies of the cross. All the promises fulfilled in the cross. Number two, the fear of God brings a life, a life of joy-filled solemnity and dignity. We live in a culture that says, you're not significant. Right now, it's no big deal. You're just one cog on a great machine. When you die, you die. Just, you, you just do your thing. And, and the Bible screams, right now counts forever. The Bible screams, you are significant. The Bible screams, you build in the next generation. The Bible screams, you are people who give an account to God for the way you've lived your life. And so there should be a, a, a deep sense of, of of, of solemnity that grips our souls because God has, says, fear me for your good. Let me just read a few verses. They're in the, the worship guide. Listen to Nehemiah 1.11. Nehemiah is getting ready to go under a tremendous building program. And Nehemiah 1.11 says this, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your people, your servant, and, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Powerful. Delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Where we delight to fear your name. And as we do that, give us success. Or Deuteronomy 10. 12 to 13. And now we always require, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in his ways, to love him, and to keep his commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Listen, God has given us his word for our good. So, so the fear of the Lord leads to a joy-filled adoration of, of God. Or Psalm 31 verse 19 says this, Oh, how abundant is your goodness which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. No, God has stored up blessings and stored up insight and stored up a sense of, of, of joy and purpose for those who reverence him and, and, and fear him with adoration and joy and trembling worship. And I ask, you, as I ask me, do you walk in this type of reverence? Number three, the fear of the God takes away a, a whimsical attitude that says life is no big deal. Life is a big deal. Just think of the, the qualifications for office holders in the church. It talks about deacons and elders. It says that the deacons sh should be men who are um, men who are sober-minded. Chapter 3, verse 2. Or excuse me, an elder should be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded. So sober-minded. There's, there's a depth to life. 
It says regarding deacons in verse 8, deacons likewise must be dignified. They're not slap happy. They realize life is significant. It says about deacons also in verse 9 that they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. I mean, when you know Christ, there's a sense of sobriety, joyful trembling. I was listening to a podcast the other day from National Public Radio on uh, the arts. They were doing a recap of the Academy Awards. It was very interesting and very insightful. And uh, as they were doing the podcast, they said, we want to take a break and we want to uh, talk about the death of Luke Perry. Luke Perry died just a few weeks ago at the age of 52 of a massive stroke. Drop, just drop. Got very sick. Stroke two weeks later, he's dead. 52. Now, I didn't, I'm not familiar with Luke Perry, but he was the kind of the heartthrob of uh, Beverly Hills 90210. Is that, is that right, Mike? It was 90210? Is that right? That's your favorite show, I know, for several years. Uh, anyway. And uh, as they did the, the talk about Luke Perry, there was a woman on it who said, You know, um, I've said some pretty harsh things as a film critic about Luke Perry's acting. But I want to say this. She said, um, Luke Perry was a fine man. And we're going to miss him. And then she said this. And it was so astounding to me, I pulled over and wrote it down. She said, Luke, I want to say to you, have a good trip. Have a good trip. And I went, <laughs> a good trip. That's, that's our culture. Our culture, you die, just have a good trip. Across the river sticks or wherever you're going, have a good trip. You see, we, we have church, listen, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have sobriety because you believe that there is a place called heaven for those who trust in Christ. And that place called heaven is 1,000 times, 10,000 times better than everything we've experienced here at such a heightened degree. The best movie we've ever had is 10,000 times better. The most beautiful scenic view you've ever had is it's, it's glorious. And there's, there, there's fellowship and there's projects and there's knowledge and there's it's, it's wonder forever and ever and ever and resurrection bodies and and you also believe there's a place called hell that is separation from the presence of God. And it's a place of pain. It's a place of agony. I mean, how much of it is figuratively, figurative regarding the fires and that, but it is a place of torment. And people who have not trusted in Christ go there. They don't, you don't have a good trip. And so because of that, there is a sobriety about what we do. So we walk in the trembling joy, reverential awe of God. We, we don't fear those. Should not fear those who can only kill the body. And listen, church in North Africa, my friends in North Africa, yeah, they're going to persecute you. But the worst they can do is kill your body. Church in the Middle East, church in Afghanistan, in Cuba, and Iraq, and Syria. Church in North America. America, they, they may pass you over for job promotions and make you the scuttlebutt of the jokes of the office. That's all they can do. Number four, if we walk in the fear of God, then we take the ammunition out of the 
detractors of the gospel. First Peter says, live such a good life that, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see the reality and they'll glorify God in the day he visits. And then when we walk in the sobriety and the joy-filled trembling of the fear of God, then we represent Christ. In Titus chapter 2, Titus is writing about good theology, and he says, older men teach younger men, and older women teach younger women how to be godly people, and how to be busy, and how to be loving, and kind, and self-controlled. And then he says in verse 11, for, or because, or, or so, is the joining word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous to do good works. So, So how do we... Live this way where you glory in the cross. You think well. And when you think well and live well, you take ammunition out of the guns of those who are detractors in the gospel of Jesus who want to belittle us. And they have to say, you know, I don't believe what they believe. And I think they're kind of strange. But, man, they live it out. I told them in Friday morning the most important verse in the Bible, I think, on parenting It's in Proverbs, I think it's 23, 26, that says, My son, give me your heart and observe my ways. Give me your heart. Give me your heart and observe my ways. Application. Application is this, very quickly. Number one, faith-filled disciples live with confidence in the Father's acceptance and love. Uh, don't, don't, don't get over this. Don't get over the fact that we're going to wake up tomorrow morning and as we become aware of where we are and we start thinking, we can say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Well, we can say, my rest and joy is not in what I have done but in what Christ has done for me. Every other religion, every, 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 every other religion says it's all about what I'm doing for the God, whoever defines him or however I define him. The biblical faith is the only religion that says it's all about what Jesus has done for us. I don't fear condemnation. I don't fear judgment. I don't fear being cast out. I don't fear being called out. Boom. You run to Matthew 7, where Jesus says, If you then, though you are evil parents, that's me, that's you, know how to give good gifts to your children, and we do. You know, occasionally I'll give a good gift to my kids. Occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll lock up and do something good. If you, though you're evil parents, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good, 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 good gifts to those who call upon him? How much more? We serve the how much more God, faith-filled Disciples. Faithful disciples, number two, live with trust in the daily provision and mercies of the living God. You never wake up and say, God's not enough. You wake up and you say, Philippians 4.19, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. And that is never ending. 
riches and glory in Jesus. We say Matthew 10, this passage. Even the hairs of your head are numbered, brothers and sisters. Number three, faith-filled disciples speak his glories to those around him. Jesus says this with great clarity. He says, you know, whoever, whoever honors me before men, I will honor before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny my Father in heaven. See, faith-filled disciples who walk with fear and trembling speak the name of Christ. And I challenge you during the Easter season, I challenge you to speak the name of Jesus to a co-worker, a family, and either you speak it in person, you call them, you write them a letter, and you say, I just want to tell you as Easter approaches, that I'm, 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 I appreciate your friendship, and I'm praying that you understand the glory of the empty tomb and the empty cross and the resurrected Christ. I believe he's the way, the truth, and the life. Boom. Faith-filled disciples speak his name. They speak his name. May God give us the grace to walk and the trembling joy, the reverence of the fear of God as we behold the mercies of the cross. There's a hymn that says, it's by a guy named Charles Wesley again, or for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The triumphs of my God and King, the glories of his grace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. See, here, it's, it's good theology. It's good theology. He breaks the power. See, all sin is canceled. But what Wesley's saying is that as that we walk with the Lord, he breaks the power of canceled sin. The sin is forgiven, but sin still tries to inroad and grab us. And as we run to him, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's the gospel. And that makes me want to sing and dance and shout and do somersaults, if I could. I can't, but I would. He breaks the power of cancel sin, church. He sets the prisoner free. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Uh, thank you for the, the thank you for these, these really stirring words. Jesus, you say, have no fear. Of them, and you say, but fear him, and you, then you say, fear not. So we don't want to be involved in the craven fear of a servant that's, uh, that's not in the family. We want to be people who have the fear of a dearly loved daughter or son that is overwhelmed with the kindness of mom and dad. And as we see the kindness, many of us, the kindness of wonderful parents, the most wonderful parent, multiply that times, 100 billion, and you're getting close to the love of the triune God, and it blows our mind. So we want to run to that. So help us to understand the reverential, trembling fear of God that is good for our souls and compels us in Jesus' name. Amen.